Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. We will be joined by Morgan Rhodes, my co-host in the second half. She is stuck in traffic right now. But anyways, you are listening to Heat Rocks. We're in the middle of our Music and Popcorn miniseries where we invite a guest to join us to talk about a cinematic slash musical heat rock. And today we are rolling to Tripp's Pool Hall to play some Street Fighter and revisit Ernest Dickerson's debut film from 1992, Juice. Juice opens on Harlem Morning with an introduction to GQ, Bishop, Rahim, and Steele, four teens who spend most of their days ditching high school and jumping fences to get away from the cops. What we think begins as an ensemble piece, coming-of-age story, takes a darker turn as Bishop, played by Tupac in his first starring role, descends into madness. It's perhaps fitting that this psychological thriller would be directed by Ernest Dickerson, who had cut his teeth as the cinematographer for not just Spike Lee's early films, but also the 1980s Tales from the Dark Side horror anthology series, and then later helmed horror comedies such as Demon Knight and Bones when he wasn't putting in lauded television work, directing episodes of The Wire, The Walking Dead, and Dexter. Juice became part of the hip-hop cinema canon, not because it was primarily about the music or culture, but because it seemed to grasp hip-hop's early 1990s sensibilities, rough and rugged, centering on the lives of young black men and the occasional token women, and operating without a template or much of a budget. Dickerson might have been a generation older than most of his actors, but he seemed to have an understanding of hip-hop zeitgeist in that moment, whether it was inviting the likes of DJ Red Alert and Special Ed to turn in cameos, or having Hank Shockley and the Bomb Squad handle the score. The film's soundtrack also captured the moment where hip-hop was trading in the colorful New Jack Swing era for a darker palette of black bubble gooses and 20 Below Timbos. For every Aaron Hall croon, there was a Cypress Hill sneer. For every Teddy Riley bounce, you had EPMD's boom. And as we'll get into, both the film and the soundtrack were a snapshot of hip-hop in a transitional moment. To quote Big Daddy Kane's contribution, enough respect, dude. Juice was the pick of our guest today, Sean Fennessy. I first met Sean going back almost 20 years when we were both writing about hip-hop for any publication that would have us. Sean became a core editor at Vibe Magazine for part of the 2000s before moving out west to Cali to join Bill Simmons's then-new pop culture and sports venture, Grantland. Sean eventually became the site's executive editor, a title that he continues to hold today with Grantland's successor, The Ringer. I had always known Sean as a music guy, but sometime over the 2000 teens, it was quickly apparent that he was also really into movies and has brought his considerable insights into writing and talking about them on the site. He also hosts the Ringer podcast on the movie industry called The Big Picture, and he's a frequent co-host on one of my favorite movie podcasts, The Rewatchables. When we first came up with the idea of music and popcorn, it was a no-brainer to try to get Sean to join us. And I'm so pleased he was able to do so. Sean, welcome to Heat Rocks. Oliver, I'm so I'm so blessed to be here with you. Thank I'm, you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. And part of it is I know how much you care about music and movies. And so I was especially curious to see what movies and soundtracks you would pick for today. 
So why Juice? Why this of all films? Well, I'll I'll cop to this. One, I knew if I put Juice on the list, you'd pick Juice. <laughs> I put I put two. two I got baited. Two Damn. red meat obvious targets oh, that any man. any dummy who I don't respect would have taken. I put the new Tarantino movie, and I think yeah. I put American Graffiti on there. Yes, which are wonderful films with great totally. soundtracks that are very meaningful to me. Absolutely. That being said, I've known you for fifteen years. Plus, You've always yeah. been very decent to me in, in my entire life and career. And I know that you love and respect juice. You you have to love and respect juice. I respect juice. Love will we'll, we'll, oh get, we'll get to the love oh, part Jesus. later. But but you're hurting me. Yes. Um, why did I pick it? Is that what you want to know? Yeah. When I saw the movie, it was transformational, and I think that there is a series of stories about young African American men at this time being made in in, in in America, basically from 1989 through 1994, 95. Right. That essentially converted an entire generation of people into sort of like understanding. Um, a, a level of culture that maybe they didn't necessarily always have access to or that they had never seen treated as equally as something like White Heat, which mm-hmm. is the James Cagney movie, which is featured in this movie. Yeah. It confers the same level of dramatic tension, of rivalry, of intensity that you want out of a great film. And, you know, everybody knows about Boys in the Hood and everybody knows about New Jack City yeah. and everybody knows about Menace to Society. I think Juice is the fourth in that quartet sure. of meaningful movies during this time that understood not just the lives of the characters, but the music that informed the lives of the characters. This music, this version of this music, is my favorite music. Mm. This is the, the, the music that I think defines my taste. Well, it's the E with the juice, I'm down to Galoot. Drop the black with the nine by the boots. Hardcore funk that make you want to punk a chump. My posse's thick, so I will never get jumped. The Slayer, a beast from the east, I'm psycho. If I had a glove, I would be bad as Michael. Some say, yo, I sound rugged. Pack with the ultimate rap. With the I think what stands out in thinking through a lot of this, too, is the ways in which Juice, within the catalog of other similar films of that era, it's kind of easy to group some things together. For example, I mean, you have a lot of um, black comedies. You have the House Party series that runs from 90 to 94. Who's the Man comes out in 93. You have your sort of what I would describe as your foundational dramas. That would include um, Do the Right Thing from 89, Boys in the Hood, New Jack City, as we talked about. Uh, Maddie Rich's Straight Out of Brooklyn, which was um, a, a very indie film, but part of this lineage. That was this, That's all 1991. And then you have your rap parodies that come out like CB4 and Fear of a Black Hat. That's 93. As far as I know, Juice is the only film of its ilk to come out in 92, which is, as we can talk mm. about, especially in the second half, in terms of where hip hop is going. That's a really pivotal kind of transitional year. But all these other films, you understand the, I think the plot line's a little bit more, in a sense, kind of predictable. So Boys in the Hood, to me, is very much a coming of age film, right, between these key characters. And Juice, I mean, maybe the closest corollary would be something maybe like a, a menace to society because O-Dog's character is also kind of nihilistic. Um, you could say stylistically, something like later on, something like Belly from 98. There's some maybe some parallels with that. But Juice doesn't really fit in, I think, easily to any of these other films that have a lot in common with each other in some ways. But this one, and partly it's because of what they decide to do with Bishop and his character that I feel like really takes it in a completely different direction in some ways. I agree with you. I think that's really astute. I don't know why that is. I don't know what it is about this dynamic. Dickerson did not write a lot of his own movies, but he mm-hmm. did have the story by credit and a co-screenwriting yes. credit Yeah, I noticed movie. that, right. And even in talking to people before we did this, 
a lot of them pointed out to me that he really did not write a lot of other films going forward. He, he goes on to make a couple of more movies inside of the studio system. And then, as you mentioned, he essentially works in television now. Right. He very rarely makes feature films now. There's a part of me that wishes he wrote more of his own work. And I would have liked to have seen what those movies were like because he is older than these characters, but he does seem to have a genuine understanding of where these characters are coming from. In a way that is different, when John Singleton made Boys in the Hood, there was this feeling, because of his age at the time, that it was a movie about his life. People thought it was extremely memoiristic. Mm. Whether that's true or not is debatable. Oh, interesting. Okay. But he was, so, I think he was 24, 25 when yeah. he made that movie. I mean, that's extraordinary. Ernest yeah. Eckerson's in his 30s at this point right. when he makes the movie. And he's got some distance from it. And he's also been making movies with Spike in New York right. for almost a decade. Right. And... I think with that comes a different kind of approach. Now, he, he basically goes on to exploit that interest in genre that you're talking about. when He, he, he makes you know, Demon Knight, which yeah. is like a fun movie. Yeah. But it, se- it seems like it's made by a completely different person. Like, it doesn't – maybe there are some visual motifs that recur. Right. But I think partially what makes Juice Juice and makes it fit into this time frame is it probably could have only happened at this time. The music, mm. the way that Q's character is portrayed – the way that Ralph McDaniels and Fab Five Freddy and all these figures and and Queen and that scene like fitting together in this time frame, it's it's kind of just before right mainstream America starts to pay attention. It's right at this crux, this sort of axis point before Illmatic, before Ready to Die, before all of these kind of signature, before this art form starts getting taken more seriously right by a, a mainstream media i guess for lack of a better phrase it what you're saying also makes me think that the expectations even though at least for me as you know i was 19 or 20 when this film came out i had a lot of expectations for it because there weren't other films that that i could turn to outside of the the small handful i named but it wasn't as if i think like when something like belly comes out in 98 right this is hype williams and his feature film um, debut. We've already been accustomed to him because of every like amazing visual music video that he's done with Bad Boy and whoever else. You know, it's got DMX, Nas, whatever. There's a lot of weight and expectation put on Belly. We expect that to be a, a big, important spectacle film. Yep. I feel like with Juice, and this just goes back to your point, it's able to exist at a point where those expectations aren't there. If the film kind of doesn't do well, no one thinks that like, oh, hip hop is taking an L because of it. Like it's allowed to kind of breathe in a way where it can be a little bit. And from my point of view, a little bit weird. Like to me, even we watching, it's like, God, this was kind of a weird film. And yeah, I I wonder, I, you know, even two, three years down the road, I feel like he would have just gotten more notes from somebody in terms of what to do with this and, and to make it cohere in a more conventional way. Whereas this kind of gets to live in its own space. Yeah. Belly is an interesting talking point i mean juice is probably like a stalking horse in some ways for belly but belly looks rich you know hypes hypes music videos personify a kind of wealth like a kind of glamour yeah that he he and puff and all those figures at that time kind of introduced to the music right juice was made for less than a million dollars right and you could tell yeah you could tell it's it's (laughs) it's shot in tenement housing yeah and it's shot with a bunch of pretty inexperienced actors you know juice the the rock him song is sort of emblematic and important to me but it's not like it was it didn't conquer the charts right right but there was something about the morality play in the movie 
that people connected to. They connect I, I, the same way that I connected to that conflict between Q and Bishop. And even as it spirals out of control and you're kind of like, what happened to this movie that I was watching about these four friends? How did it become this immensely fraught showdown movie? Right. Like a Western, really, at the end of it. Right. Yeah. But it does. I mean, it kind of becomes high noon. And Q has got to do everything he can to kind of get the, the black hat. That is the, the way they're positioning the movie. And Dickerson, obviously, student of film, understands these cla- this classical design. And he makes he pushes the movie into that. So while it feels weird, it only feels weird because it doesn't reflect on that Scarface archetype that we think of when we think of kind of quote-unquote hip-hop film. Right. I still really love it, but I don't necessarily use it as a signpost for what rap the rap lifestyle represented. Sure. You know what I mean when right. I say that? Right, Like I, Q kind of sort of seems like a guy who would succeed, but I – I don't know. I mean, you, you're you're a DJ. Help well, me understand. No, I mean, I think you know the ways in which I thought of it as being, you know, again, a quote unquote hip hop film. It's not because it's trying to engage or talk to specifics around the music and the culture, despite Q having that engagement as a DJ. But it really is, and I think you were alluding to this earlier, just that you have these films in the early '90s and, and a little bit in late '80s that are really trying to focus on the lives of primarily young black men in a way that you just, you were not seeing in, in the, the Hollywood studio system at all. And so in the ways in which hip-hop was basically putting those stories front and center for us to listen to, regardless of if the powers of B were interested in doing that, this felt like it was writing on that same kind of energy. And so whether or not it captures something essential about what hip-hop in New York was at the time, actually I had a question for you along these lines, uh, which I'll ask in a second, it was more just that its very existence seemed to be a, a validation or at least in concert with the ways in which hip-hop was really pushing from the margins and trying to assert itself in the center and to have something that you could go to a, a movie theater and watch. And maybe one reason it made $20 million is because it had nothing to compete with in 92 because there was all these other films that I mentioned or either before or after because we were starving just to see any kind of representation of that. It might, that might be the case. I mean, obviously, I'm a white kid from Long Island. So my, my perspective, perspective on that is I have no perspective. I All I know is sort of what is put in front of me. I don't have any awareness of my cultural bias. I don't have any awareness of what is not being served in the market. There is a kind of like baby was just born aspect of like this movie just seems cool. Yeah. It just, I just understand what they're trying to say. Right, right. I don't, not knowing about White Heat is okay. You yeah. can still enjoy the movie. Now, yeah. it, it rewards the rewatch because you get to pick up on those cues. Right. But Well, the Chinatown thing with, with the, knife, with the yeah. knife in the nose, like when I watched the first time, I had never seen Chinatown. That would have gone over my head. And this time it's like, oh, they're riffing. On, well, they, they, even, they even say, have you ever watched Chinatown? So they make it more explicit. I'm like, oh, there's like a meta riff here, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, not to draw the metaphor out too deeply, but the movie's called Juice. Who's got the juice is the central sort of uh, illusory dynamic in the movie. Same is true in Chinatown. Chinatown's all about the control of water and whoever controls the water controls L.A. Right. Who controls the water is this kind of like inelegant, unholdable thing. The movie is operating in the same way. It's like, what is power? Mm -hmm. What is success? What is freedom? These are like the big questions of the movie. Bishop is seeking a kind of freedom. Maybe it means going into a bar and joining, you know, this guy and firing off a shotgun to show how powerful you are. Maybe it's pursuing your dreams. Morgan has just 
joined us. How's it going, Morgan? Good. Sorry, traffic was really bad. Yeah, man. Welcome to L.A., baby. You know how it is. <laughs> you know just how it is. But I'm here. So Sean and I have been talking about the film, in, in, in particular around the character of, of Bishop, right, played by Tupac. And uh, we have yet to get your thoughts on it. And I'm curious, in particular, right, as someone who – did you watch Juice when it came out in 92? I did. Okay. You were out in Atlanta at that point. I was in Atlanta. And so what did you think in particular of, of Bishop as a character? Uh, that's a good question. I, I thought he turned up so quickly. I was like, that's all it took? It took you seeing the robbery, my man doing the robbery down here at the bar and grill for you to just be to, to become a thug. And I have to say, what what really was curious about me was I was like, not only was the robbery a weird jump off point for you, but I mean, I have to talk about placements because I'm a music supervisor, but they were playing brand new heavies in there. And I was like, <laughs> what's thuggy about brand new heavies? This is acid jazz in the 90s. But OK, if that was the thing. But I just thought they should have fleshed it out a little bit more. Right, right. Um, and it, it reminded me a little a little bit. This is a stretch. But there were parts of it that reminded me of Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. Because you always have somebody in the posse that's turned up. And I think in Reservoir Dogs, was it Mr. Pink or Mr. White? Mis- Mr. White. Mr. White. No, it's Mr. Blonde. Mr. Blonde. Yes. Who got turned up. And, and uh, Harvey Keitel was like, oh, no, what happened? All of a sudden, this guy was just shooting, blah, 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 blah. And... That's exactly what I thought of. I thought of that as I was watching it in prep for the show. But I wish there had been more backstory because he just sounded like a thug that came out of nowhere or came across that way. Yeah. Let me ask you guys a question. I'm not a Pac scholar. Nor nor I. I'm a New York person. Same. I, I respect him. There are some records I love. For the most part, it's not my guy. There's some speculation that after this movie, he kind of absorbs the Bishop persona as his outward persona as an artist, that a lot of the things Mm. that he does musically Mm. are kind of manifest from who Bishop kind of is in the movie, which is a fuck the world. I'll do what I want. Even beyond the sort of thug life cliche, literally the way that he presents himself to the world, every interview he gives, he is direct and eloquent and smart, but also he's like a chaos agent. And he's like, I'm going to keep you on your toes at all times. I kept thinking of Hit Him Up. Yeah. Right? Which is as unhinged a Tupac song as you will ever hear. I was just, every scene where Bishop is just going, you know, fully psychotic on, on Q and his boys, I'm like, okay, hit him up actually makes a lot more sense to me in terms of as a performance. Like, how do you get from point this point to that point? It's, it felt very in sync in that, that sense. Sure. And, and, and a little bit of the backstory was he was so in character that he, he wanted people to call him Bishop all throughout, even when they were, you know, they had, mm. you know, even when they were offset. And uh, apparently he kept showing up late to set. So one of the producers, um, you know, tried to spook him into coming in on time and was like, you know, you got fired. And uh, and when Pac found out it was a joke, he was hot and then just like, you know, 
roughed roughed the guy up. So there was a lot a lot mentally I think he he was carrying, mm-hmm. but I think he did embody that and if you notice that gold chain that you know his piece it ends up being his tattoo on his on his chest. So that same little gold piece that he's wearing right. he ends up having that that tatted. So I think he did take Bishop to the to the 100%. We will be back with more of our conversation with Sean Fennessy about the 1992 film and soundtrack, Juice. But first, here is a brief word from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Hey, you've reached Dr. Game Show. Leave your message after the beep. Hi, this is Sarah, and I'd like to tell you about Dr. Game Show. Dr. Game Show is a band of geniuses or nerds or brilliant artists or kids or some combination of all of those who get together to make a show like no other that's family-friendly. It's an interactive call-in game show podcast. When I found Dr. Game Show, I found joy. I told my friends and family that if they weren't listening, they were wasting joy. I sent them the episodes that made me laugh until I cried, played it for them in the car. They laughed too, laughed their butts off, but they still don't listen on their own, so they're wasting joy, and I keep looking for someone to understand me. Maybe it's you. Give Dr. Game Show a listen and find joy. Listen to Dr. Game Show on Maximum Fun. New episodes every other Wednesday. Hey, everyone. It's I, John Hodgman of the Judge John Hodgman podcast. And I, Elliot Kalin of the Flophouse podcast. And we've made a whole new podcast, a 12-episode special miniseries called iPodius, in which we recap, discuss, and explore the very famous 1976 BBC miniseries about ancient Rome called I, Claudius. We've got incredible guests such as Gillian Jacobs, Paul F. Tompkins, as well as star of I, Claudius, Sir Patrick Stewart, and his son, non-Sir Daniel Stewart. Don't worry, Dan, you'll get there someday. I, Claudius is the name of the show. Every week from MaximumFun.org for only 12 weeks. Get them at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back on Heat Rocks talking the Juice soundtrack with Sean Fennessy. Sean, I want to take us on a brief tangent here. I know you are a big fan of of both uh, Tarantino and Scorsese. Um, I mean, you recently have been have recorded a podcast with with Tarantino. Yeah, and these are two directors who are known for just the quality of their song placement uh, in movies. Uh, at least amongst American filmmakers. And insofar as we have someone who you know does a film podcast and a music supervisor in the room here, I want to, want to ask both of you, what is it about what they do that you think is so effective about how they use, especially pop songs, in their films? That's a very good question that I suspect you have a lot more insight <laughs> into than I do. I can tell you as a, a serious fan yeah. what it does for yeah. me. It's all character. It tells you everything you need to know about the intention of the character, particularly those two movies and how the character is feeling and what the setting of the film, what the setting of the moment is, you know, in Goodfellas, if you hear a Shirelle song set against a very violent act, that's a Scorsese trick. That's a move. That's an action that he's taking. He's setting something very sweet against something very severe. And he's creating this, you know, this collision, this emotional collision that's happening inside the character that's supposed to happen inside the viewer. Mm. So that's one version of it. The other thing, too, I think Tarantino does that as well. Tarantino's a little showier when he does it and has a little bit more of a crate digger approach to it, especially in his last couple of films. Sure. And he, to me, it's with Tarantino, it's a little bit more of a flex. In particular, the last movie, it's a lot of like, 
sure, you know songs from 1969, but you don't know these songs. Right. The, and these are the records that were playing on the radio. Right. And here's how I know. I listened to the recording of the radio station. What about for you when you're looking to place? Well, I, I haven't had the good fortune of having those budgets. <laughs> uh, but also, too, I think he, he consistently works with Mary Ramos, so we want to shout, shout out her. I feel like um, you made an excellent point about it being a flex. This is a little bit of, um, I'm not just a filmmaker. I could have been a DJ, right? Absolutely. But I chose this route. Um, and it's a flex. I, I, I have always said that his, his placements, they feel like a blanket. You are suffocated and surrounded in this time period, right? They undergird the scenes in a way that it doesn't take you out of the moment. Even for me as a music supervisor, I never stop and say, what's that song? Because it's it, it's similar to what we say about about the difference between hip-hop DJs and house DJs. By the time you, and especially in contemporary DJs, when you fall in love with a song, the hip-hop DJ has moved on to the next. By the time you're like, yo, yo, that's my jam, they're already, already to the next. Where your responsibility as a house DJ is to make your whole set feel like one long song. Mm. And that's the gift of Tarantino, mm. that the whole soundtrack feels like one long song, one long period. You can't, they, they move seamlessly from one point to the other, be it Reservoir Dogs, and one of my favorites is Jackie Brown. You never get out of that car. You never leave the car. It's almost like the whole thing is El Segundo, LAX, and you never leave that car. It makes you think that every song you hear is in that car mm. on the radio. Totally agree about Jackie Brown. But to spin back to what Sean was saying about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I just loved when Quentin threw in Hector by the Village Callers in there. All right, let's bring this back to Juice. And, okay. and specifically, let's get into the music component of it. And one of the Let's things that we've been talking about in the first half was how Juice was very much on a cinematic level, this kind of a, a transitional point in sort of what Black Simon was doing. But certainly the soundtrack, when you look at it, and I have to say this soundtrack I think holds up tremendously well um, in ways that perhaps some of the other similar um, you know, so-called hip-hop movie soundtracks of that same year, maybe not as much. This one holds up really well, and I do think it captures this really fascinating snapshot of where hip-hop was at in 92, where you have this mix of up-and-coming artists that I, in that uh, area I would include Naughty by Nature, who do, of course, Uptown Anthem, which plays during the, the closing credits. Um, you have Cypress Hill, who have one song on the soundtrack, but also um, a very prominent, we'll maybe come back to this later, a very prominent placement of How I Can Just Kill a Man, their first big hit, which happens in the movie itself. Iconic scene. Right. Truly iconic scene. You have mid-career um, Eric B. and Rakim doing the, the the main title track. You have Big Daddy Kane, which we talked about a little bit earlier with Enough Respect. You got Salt and Pepper in there. And then you have late era New Jack Swing um, with Aaron Hall, Teddy Riley, um, and to your point uh, earlier, Morgan, some early hip-hop soul or, oh, yes. or acid jazz with India Davenport and the brand-new heavies. Yeah, Tammy Lucas right. in the record store. And what's interesting is who's actually kind of missing from this, where if you're thinking about hip-hop in 92, it's like, well, where's, where's Pete Rock and Seal? Yes. Though Pete Rock gets a shout-out on the flyer of the DJ battle. So it's like Pete Rock is still in there, even if his music isn't in there. Really strangely, there's no Tupac, and maybe it's just because it was too early in his career for him to have a, enough of a body of work, but it's it still seems odd that... This being such an important film for his acting career, they didn't bother to say, yo, Pac, you want to do a song for this? Right. But that aside, I think it actually does a really great job of kind of capturing 
where hip hop was moving in that moment because we didn't really know that Biggie and Nas and Mob Deep were just around the corner. And a lot of like the more prominent artists that were on the soundtrack were about to become kind of outmoded once 93, 94, 95 rolled around. Sure. But you still had this when they were kind of at the top of their game. Sure. You mentioned Pete Rock. And uh, as soon as I saw the flyer, I was like, oh, Q, you about to lose. Like if, the, if the, these are your competitors, you about to lose, Playboy. You going up against Richie Rich, Pete Rock, DJ Plaz? Like, it's a wrap. So when he when he got a call back, I was like, this cannot be possible. But it's film. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that you didn't mention, maybe you were going to get to it, was um, Cindy from En Vogue being in the film. Yes. But the, no En Vogue music. Right. And they probably could have gotten licensed that for, I mean, you for a Which, song, and I didn't. Even, in there. She looked familiar, but I couldn't place. She plays Yolanda, who is uh, Q's like older girlfriend. May December, and I have some questions about that relationship. Yeah, but yeah. I feel little, like it's not, not totally sure what she's seeing in Q. It's no. not very well High developed. Student yeah, Q, right? right? Yeah, but no one. It's surprising. There's no in vogue, and like, no you're, in you're vogue. casting these folks, but you're not getting them to to kick kick you some songs, right? Though. And their their scene where we meet them, where they come, where we come to meet them, you know, biblically. <laughs> um, they're playing uh, that that Aaron Hall, Don't Be Afraid. Right, right. And so another shout out to, to Teddy Riley and Teddy Riley's Discovery. That song is a jam, but that's not the one that I liked. There's a, there's another version of Don't Be Afraid, mm. which I thought was a, was a missed opportunity because there's a smoothed out, slow version of Don't Be Afraid. Also by Aaron Hall? Also by Aaron Hall. Oh, okay. Christian, can you pull that up? Shout out to the string arrangement on here. That feels a little extra, but okay. Sex you down some mo. <laughs> but maybe that's what Frank would have picked. Q picked the rugged yes. OG. Don't New, Jack's, New Jack Swing. That's version. it. And that's what Yolanda wanted. But that was one of my favorite uh, placements in, 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 the, in the piece. Sean, what did you think of the, the music and the soundtrack of it? It's at a very interesting inflection point, especially for hip hop. Obviously, New Jack Swing and R&B and where it goes from here, it changes a lot, right. but it's still recognizable. This is a kind of last moment before the icons show up yeah. moment in rap. And like For us, P-Rock and Seal Smooth are iconic, but for Absolutely. the public at large, right. there's just not as much mental awareness of them. But Nas is, is about to be on a main source record. Right. You know, like... Biggie already has is, been Biggie, actually, Biggie, yeah. Already has. Biggie yeah. is coming. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? Like the 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 figures, and then Jay, and then on and on, and then the figures who come to dominate the genre, and kind of define and contextualize the genre for a lot for two more generations to come, are not quite there yet. So you're at this interesting point where it's not especially totally just boogie down productions, but it's not Jay Z. It's this middle ground, and you know the other thing that's not here, interestingly, is there's no Public Enemy here either. Right. Who was you know the defining artist for Spike for all those right. years? And again, Hank, Hank Shockley, Shockley and the Bomb Squad do the score. They do the and so score. yeah, how did how did they not get people? And that for like Wicca Wicca like scratchity thing that is going on throughout the movie is right. indelibly Hank. Yes, very. That's very much true, and that is also a sound that you just don't hear really in rap. At maybe two three years later, it kind of moves on. Right.
So I, I like it as a document of that time. Like it feels really, really true to 92 in a way. And like Cypress Hill would be legible to people five, ten years from now and they're still very successful artists. Yeah. Right. But I don't know. I mean, like Tretch is in this movie. Naughty by Nature close out the film. I don't know. Like what is Naughty by Nature's reputation in 2020? Like are people really aware of who they were well, and what my, they did? No, because my coordinator was like, he's cute. I was like, okay, <laughs> so about him. <laughs> Let me tell you about him. Vinny's in the film too, as well. Isn't yeah. Vinny in a scene? Yeah. I mean, EPMD are in the bar when they in get the held bar. up. You know, special right. Ed, it's driving off with uh, with Yolanda. I <laughs> That's think, right. I got right. Yeah. I'm outspoken. My language is broken into a slang, but it's just the dialect that I select when I hang. I play it cool. Cause fooling is all that I'm about. Just fooling with the girlies, yes, and busting it out. I'm special ed, and you can tell by the style that I use. I'm creatively superior, yo. I never lose. I mean, Sean, to your point just now about Naughty by Nature and Tretch, you know, there was a, a, a point legitimately around the time that Uptown Anthem comes out where Tretch is really considered, you know, in the conversation for best rapper alive in that moment. And I, I think on something like an Uptown Anthem, you can hear just like the quality of the flow and yeah. just the, the, the ferocity that he brings to it. That's how I roll with my hair, do dope. When the will I got, won't in competition ain't dope. Beat your break, your broke, your smoke, your take, your senior to your little group on mute. Sooner or later, you want to flip, tell him full, send me half with a dip. And all that other ringling brother shit. And it, it's, I forgot that, and this is something that I just don't feel like would happen today, is that Uptown Anthem was never released on an album outside of the soundtrack. So the two songs, and I forget the B-side, which is actually even harder than Uptown Anthem, but that just existed as its own like maxi single, but it wasn't on 1993. And so it just kind of existed right in its own... And I just feel like kind of a missed opportunity to capitalize. Like you just should have put it on, maybe make it the bonus track if you need to, for you know, sure. in 1993, but not to capitalize on the prominence of, of, of Uptown Anthem, which I think for a lot of people was considered like the, their pinnacle song. I mean, it wasn't as necessarily as commercially popular as like OPP or Hip Hop Hooray. Sure. But in terms of like respect from the heads, like oh, Uptown sure. Anthem is about as it's high as you thing. can get. It was for sure. It's yeah. a thing. It's interesting that How I Could Just Kill a Man isn't here and Shoot Him Up is here. Right. I don't know. Is that a clearance issue? Is that because that record was going to be too big for Cypress Hill that they didn't want to license it to a soundtrack? This is a unusual mix. There's mm. obviously this long history now, especially of hip hop centric soundtracks, where you essentially assign artists a, a song to deliver, mm -hmm. and it's like this is these songs will be for the Above the Rim soundtrack. Right. This feels like an odd collection of a some things both. seemed original. Totally, sure. totally. Some things the Aaron Hall song is not. That wasn't a song that preexisted. They, yeah. they cherry picked that. You know, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't actually know how this how this works. But how this is assigned is kind of fascinating to me. Well, sometimes you can clear the rights for use, but you do, you're not able to clear those same rights to use on a soundtrack. Sometimes artists want more, and you're not willing to pay that. Sometimes there are sample issues, and you're just like, mm. we're not trying to do that for the soundtrack. But along these lines, is it less expensive to commission an artist to create a new song for a soundtrack than license like a known hit? It depends on the artist. Mm -hmm. It depends on the artist. So there's one other thing about this, and it's related to what you're saying that sure. is interesting to me. So I don't know anything about Juvenile Committee. <laughs> yeah. Juvenile Committee, obviously a, a bunch Flip of- Flip side, young, Juvenile Committee. A bunch of young boys that they got to make a record. There are right. not a lot of Juvenile Committee songs out there in the known universe. Yeah. But at this time- 
there is a lot of teen and adolescent yeah. rap the happening. youngsters the youngsters sure. and shaheem well, no, the rugged child shaheem the rugged child we're like it's another this bad creation time yes. crisscross crisscross yeah. yeah. we're on the verge of crisscross yeah. the hooligans there's all kinds of like teenagers who are getting record deals right young black teenagers who were none not of black the, yeah, yeah none of the above actually but yeah sure yeah let's not let's not speak on that too too long <laughs> but that's sure is on his way out he's not a rapper but to your point of teenagers getting deals and it felt like they tried to jerry rig one onto this soundtrack right. that never really popped off but i find that to be like an interesting subgenre of rap too you know the 15 year old who is, has bars your point sean i am curious about who made the decision to get them on there because to me this is like the weakest track on the whole soundtrack (laughs) and and there's there's some very decent like kind of kitty rap stuff out there like early mob deep like before the infamous where their voices hadn't changed it there's actually some decent stuff on there juvenile hell speaking of juvenile exactly right this however i do not think is a pinnacle example of the genre no (laughs) no it isn't and they might since uh since uh, EPMD was in, they might have gotten, this might have been a little bit earlier, but they might have gotten illegal. Remember that group, EPMD? Yeah. Yeah, Eric Sermon. Eric Sermon produced, With right. Jamal and stuff. Jamal uh, Fades Mall? Jamal. <laughs> that was a jam, though. I so okay we we talked about like the the opposite of the heat track uh so two questions here the first one what is what is to you the fire track off the soundtrack regardless of its use in the film that's going to be the second question but just in terms of as strictly song craft what is like what is the hype joint off of the soundtrack for each of you it has to be the title track the title track is unbelievable sip the juice i got enough to go around and the thought takes place uptown i grew up on a sidewalk while on street talk and they talk to all from york i go to queens for queens to get the food from broken they pony in my hat and they never been took it go uptown that is fire so can, can you i know you know the the sample mythology that record. I actually don't know where the baseline is from. I mean, that baseline is. It does a lot of work. Whew. Does all the work. It's wrapped around my neck. Yeah. It's so powerful. Yeah. And, you know, he's he is the most controlled on the one rapper of all time. I mean, he he really. We were talking about what Tretch did for rappers, but Rock Him, that sort of like in the pocket, yeah, man, f- relentless tone is just amazing. I mean, he is still amazing to me, and. To open your movie that way, this sort of declaration of purpose <laughs> is so great. It's just such a I, – I will listen to that song until the day I die. The brand new morn, no time to yawn. Showers on, powers on, late for school. I catch the train, girl, sip the style and whisper my name. I push up like an exercise, check the intellect and inspect the vibe. That is fire. I have I have no pushback on on that. Actually, my favorite track is "Is It Good to You." 
<laughs> you yes. you are going to die on this new jack swing hill. I am. I love I, that. I love that about you. Morgan. I've taken so much heat for my new jack love, but it is the most. There's no pressure on it. It doesn't have to carry the weight of the story. It's light. I need a distraction while they're in there stealing from the record store. <laughs> I need something to make me feel like not so bad about it. And I just love New Jack. You know, I've said it before. I love yeah, New Jack Swing. Of course. Um, I'm not going to take anything away from the title track, but this, at the point where it came in the movie, I was like, oh, man. When my love comes down, I don't have to run around. I've got you and you know just what to do to fulfill all my needs. Do you think, do you think New Jack Swing could ever come back? In any way, could it ever be a, a a key influence on something that is contemporarily popular? If it's left up to me, Sean, <laughs> I've got to bring it back because I I, I, mean, ju- I just think there's so many. Teddy Riley gave birth to so many so many children sonically, and I right. think it's I think Pharrell's so devoted to him and and, and is so enamored of his style that it's right. going to be Pharrell that produces like a whole that makes sense actually a whole new Jack Swing album. I mean, I'm not going to out you here, Morgan, but you are working on some rather high profile projects, and I'm I'm like if anyone could sneak in a little new Jack Swing to kind of bring it back, you're you're well positioned to try to make that happen. Listen, what about I mean, a little I mean, Tony, Tony, to... Tony somewhere? Oh, you know, man. like how do we how do we get that back in the conversation? That's well, what I want. We, well. We should have brought that up when we were when we were doing our interview with Raphael. With Raphael, we yeah. should have brought that up. It's like we got to get TTT up in some big production, or here. get Guy back together, mm. or Rex in Effect, or somebody. <laughs> See, Sean, now you got me going down my whole little. It's good to love things. I'm getting choked up in here. What about you, Oliver? You didn't, you're not picking a track. Uh, no, it, to me, it really comes it comes down between Uptown Anthem and Juice. Uh, both of which have that just intense, just get hyped energy to it. And choosing between Tretch, as we've been talking about, at the top of his game, and Rakim, who still certainly had it in 92, I think is really tough. And the way in which I chose between them is I was thinking, if I was at a party and one of these two songs came up, which one would I be more lit up by? And the answer actually is pretty clear. It has to be Juice. And partially it's because of my my well-established animosity towards bad synthesized keyboards and as good as uptown anthem is the way that that song opens kind of ruins it until they do away with it and then get to the actual main beat so apparently someone found the harpsichord button on some Casio keyboard and decided to make the opening to it. Right. And, and, a, and a blues album. Right. Because <laughs> that's what it's a gospel. You As know a, what it sounds like to me? It sounds like the song that a Vincent Price character would be playing <laughs> if he was trapped in the top of a of a castle and he was like some sort of ghoulish man who'd been str- living alone for years and he developed this romantic harpsichord sound. <laughs> like it's a very strange way to open a rap record. It is. Maybe if it was like an acoustic harpsichord I could roll with that. But the fact that it's a synthesized harpsichord, it just throws me off every time, as opposed to, again, to your point, Sean, like the beginning of Juice. So it's got to be it's got to be Juice. I feel like Uptown Anthem makes you want to party. 
and juice makes you want a shadow box, right? So, mm. like, what do you want out of your your rap anthem? Right. right. You know, do you want to have a good time, or do you want to be like, I am the conqueror of the world. I am Bishop. Nothing can beat me. Yes. So we've established what our fire trucks off the soundtrack are, but let's bring this back to sort of the use of music in the film itself. And we've actually already talked about, I think, what has to be one of the key candidates here, which is Cypress Hill and How I Could Just Kill a Man, which plays for not a short amount of time during uh, this effectively a chase scene between Q and Bishop um, in the projects, in a project building. That song is incredible. I mean, just everything in terms of Be Real's voice the amount of work that Muggs put into that production, I actually have like an entire web page devoted to breaking down every bar in that production in terms of what mm. Muggs is doing with it. It's like, I'm, I'm so in love with it. And it works so well in this film to kind of capture that, the energy, um, the, the sense of menace that is happening as uh, Bishop is basically trying to gun down on the low cue th- moving through the, this project. As a music supervisor, I will say that is a fantastic placement. Not only the lyrics of the song, but the spirit of the song. Mm. There's this, you said menacing, absolutely, but there's this sort of almost hazy, distorted um, feeling and spirit of the song, and that's the spirit of the scene. Right, right. That it is Bishop trying to navigate and Q trying to navigate this maze of getting to getting to each other and getting to, you know, the the final the showdown. Act, the yeah. showdown. Yeah. And so I thought it was perfect. There's a lot of other songs that could have gone there, but that one. It's just the voice on there. It's just the feel, yeah. the confusion that I think that that song elicits. Perfect. Here's why it works so well for me. The song hits. Bishop is in pursuit of Q. He's chasing Q. It's a cat and mouse part of the movie. We enter this essentially like party scene. Right. They're in the project. And everybody's looking at them. They're, they have these odd looks as they kind of scramble through the party. And then they get onto the roof. And the song essentially, the roles change. You know, it sounds like Bishop is rapping the song to Q. And he's like, I could just kill you. That's essentially what he's saying. And then by the end of the movie, it's Q who, it's like she was on the other foot. You got the juice now. How 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 Q could just kill a man. Like right. that, it's doing so much work. There's no dialogue really mm. that's telling the story there. But the song is telling the story of what happens to these two characters. Plus it's just... The song just bangs, you know. Yeah. It's just a great Perfect. record. Shout out to Kathy Nelson, who was the music supervisor on that, and also to that scene at the end. I mean, just seeing it again. I mean, at the, at, when I saw it originally, it was just like when that scene when he when he goes off the ledge. I mean, when he goes off the ledge. But seeing it again, I was like, <laughs> Oh shit! I didn't even think about that. Oh yeah. Until yeah. Now. Oh yeah. Now I kind of like the Rock Kim song a little bit less, or maybe I like the film less for being a little too literal. With it's on that. the nose. It, it it's is a little super on the nose. On the I mean, nose. the movie literally ends with this guy saying, "You have the juice now." Right. <laughs> I know. Right. Right. Which, know, know the ledge is the is the name of the song. Which is, and you, you might have been too young or too li or maybe too white to know the answer to this, but were Cats in New York actually using the word juice 
in 92 to the extent that it was. I think I had that question even back in 92 watching the film. It's just like, is this actual lingo that, that young that the young people are using? Let's pose that to our New York listeners because, you know, I'm, I'm West Coast. So no I, doubt. I, I know we weren't using it out here. No, right. But I do have to say about The Ledge, though, watching it again, I mean, I love, I love, I think, Pac was a prolific actor in this. The worst acting was when he fell off that ledge. <laughs> I've yelled harder falling off of my bed. Come on, Q, don't let me go. I got you, Bishop, man. Come on, hold on. Q, don't let me go. Just hold on, man. I can't hold on, man. Oh! Bishop! How about you, Sean? Any other standouts in terms of music in the film? Well, we haven't talked about what could be better, bitch. And Son of Berserk. Um, Where was that in the film? I think I missed it. Uh, I think it's nearer to the end before Steel is killed. Okay. And um, I don't, you know, Son of Berserk is a is a Hank Shockley discovery. Yeah. Complicated artist. I think the tonality of Son of Berserk is a little different than a lot of the other artists <laughs> on this on this soundtrack. Yeah. And really in New York at the time. Yeah. Um, much more aggressive, much more almost like serial comic. Like, I'm not totally sure what the, the, what do you know about Son of Berserk? Not a lot, but I always thought of him as like, what if Bismarck Key went off a really bad bender? Well put. You would end up with Son of Berserk. A little bit of Pete Rock in that voice. Sorry, not Pete Rock. A little bit of uh, Chuck D kind of flow yeah, in that voice, yeah. too. I was, think, I was thinking a little like Akinelli, too, you know? Right. Like, yeah. Uh-da, uh-da. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Anyway, that just, that's just a weird record. Yeah. Son of Berserk is like not really to be heard from again. Right. Um, there's a few of those on this record that that sort of stuff always pops out to me. When you're like, catalog, when, you know, when I was 20 and cataloging all my like 12 inches and figuring right. out what records matter to me, it's always like the weird one that you're like, I can't find another record by this artist. Why is this on this soundtrack with Salt and Peppa and EPMD? Like, how did this person get here? And Aaron Hall. Aaron Hall, famous people. But you know, as soon as this episode airs, someone is going to find Son of Berserk, or Son of Berserk is going to reach out and be like, "Yo, he's maybe he, him and um, you know Juvenile Committee are on some nostalgia tour. You know, <laughs> Rock the Bells, <laughs> the B List. You know." talked about enough respect i like that song so much that it was hard for me to see q scratching it up i was like come on you're really scratching it but apparently um omar epps before the shooting um had you know studied dj and so that's all him ah which mm-hmm. explains a lot it does explain a lot yeah yeah so here's my really big nitpick and what really brings juice down in a certain way is the scratching just is not good no <laughs> And it would be more understandable if that were if this film had taken place, let's say, in 1986 or 87. But by 1992, like Cash Money, Jazzy Jeff, freaking Qbert, like DJ Aladdin, like scratching is more advanced than what he what he puts down here. He's off tempo, like he's not on beat. And so I was trying to I was trying to figure out like, is this actually Epps or do they get someone else to put on? Those workout gloves, which I'm not really sure what that does except for a style flex. But 
it just it sounds really amateur. But if that actually is Omar Epps, then it actually makes more sense yep. because it does it doesn't sound clean. Yeah. Especially for someone who's supposed to be battling with it. Like that's no. not a clean routine. No. Actually, you know, knowing that, I'm actually more sympathetic to it because that would make because it sounds like someone who doesn't know scratching very well. Sure. And it's kind of like a basic style and it's not executed that well no. but so they have the, if they had brought in like a professional that'd been like terminator x i'd be like dude what what happened or like a hand double yeah like get somebody else's hands out here right. that's really right it's like the hip-hop movie version of james Kahn's phantom punch on carlo and the godfather it's like well he clearly didn't hit him right <laughs> this is like so obviously badly staged oh. sure. and it's an important movie and we all love it yeah but there's just no way James can punch that guy. Right. And this is like, well, Omar Epps is not a good DJ. It's no. okay. It's uh, for me as a kid seeing the movie, especially the scene when he, you know, is all over the crossfader in his bedroom. Yeah. Oh my I was God. like, this is captivating. This is like, how do I get closer to this? Right. And I think in 92, it was just cool to see that represented in a film. Right. That's, right. Yes. In 2020, I'm like, okay, that's still cool historically, but like, he needs to spend a lot more time in that bedroom and kind of up his game for it to sound like the way <laughs> sure. that it should sound. Yeah. I mean, especially if he was going to win contests and stuff. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Right. If we were to make Juice today, what would be the equivalent in the way that, right, these artists that we've been talking about, right, this transitional year of 92 that got on here, your Naughty by Nature's, your Eric B. Rockham, your Big Daddy Kane's, Teddy Riley, et cetera. If you were making this film in 2020, who would be the equivalent artist to put on here? Like, who would you get to do, like, the title track? Like, who is, who's the 2020 Rakim? And I don't mean someone who sounds like Rakim. Oh, you want to know the artist, not the story. You, you don't want to know the Pac. I mean, sure. Let's say that you're, you're, you're remaking Juice, right? And it's and, set in New York. Sure. Okay. And you need a soundtrack to go with it, and you need something that is able to do the same kind of work that the, some of the songs in the soundtrack do. Who are the artists that you're going with? Who, when Kendrick is on an aggressive record. Right gives you the same feeling that Juice can give you. Now, Kendrick is from Los Angeles, so that Absolutely. is not a New York artist. That maybe doesn't communicate what Juice needs to communicate. But, I mean, who is a New York rapper? But, see, that was going to be that was gonna be my thing. Who is, who's a New York rapper? Who's young? Who, if we were redoing Juice, I mean, if it's just a, you know, if you, uh, just who? Because who makes me want to shadow box is Pusha T. Mm. Pusha T is also not a New York rapper, mm-hmm. right? He would love to be, though, wouldn't he? I could, actually, I could, see, I could see Pusha getting that getting that call yep. to do the title track. Yeah. And it doesn't, I don't think it has to be a New York rapper necessarily. Okay. But to have that effect, right, That just the, the ampness of it, I could it imagine it would him. be someone like Pusha. Yep. You know, maybe one of like, I don't know if I would give one of the Griselda folks like I the title track. Griselda or Benny the Butcher, you know, somebody yeah. like that. They would get like track nine. Yeah. You know, that's that's where they fall. They, they get to be in one of the bar scenes for about <laughs> a 10 second placement and like that's that's them there. But you're not giving you're not giving them opening credits. And you're not going to give them closing no. credits. I mean, the, the the sort of superstructure of New York rap doesn't exist in the same way. You right. know, you, sure. couldn't, you couldn't build a whole soundtrack out of this version of kind of like the gritty New York rap sound. No. Well, let me flip this question a different way. Where would you set Juice today if you wanted to tell a similar kind of story? If it's not New York, what would be the equivalent by 2020 standards? To me, it would be like, would you really set it in L.A.? Because that whole you know, that 
that whole gangster thing, not that the gangster thing is over, but it's different. So this isn't the time around colors. This isn't boys in the hood. Right. I don't know because I don't know if any coast is really reigning supreme where hip hop is concerned. And you can't put Drake on it. And, you know, I love Drake. <laughs> but you can't set it in Toronto in the six. Right. It's not Atlanta. It, that's not that's that's fair. It could be Atlanta. There is like a still like a creative lifeblood identifiable sound sure. there that you could orient it around maybe. It'd be trappy though. I mean I was it thinking Chicago. Trappy. Yeah. You know. Could be. More of a drill soundtrack. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. And just it just and I know I'm I'm painting with some stereotypes here, but just for the idea of like cities that still we still feel like there's a certain amount of grit and I mean Sean Sean and I were talking before we started taping just about how much New York has changed and other cities like San Francisco. It, it's hard to f- give you like the New York or the Harlem that's being represented in 1992 juice like that Harlem doesn't really exist in 2020. And so I think if you have to find a city in which you still have some of that grit to it, it's not going to, I don't think it's going to be in New York to the same degree. And I do think maybe it's in the South or maybe it's still in one of like the Rust Belt cities in the Midwest. I mean, you could maybe chief Keefe if you're going to do Chicago, Mm -hmm. maybe chief Keefe. That's the thing is I think if you're looking also to cast a Bishop, yeah, you know, this is against my better judgment, but you need like kind of a Takashi six nine kind of a figure who's yeah. like, when you see this person, they indicate chaos to you. Right. That's what they bring to the role, and you're like, something's mm. going to go wrong here until you find out he's a studio construct and yeah, snitch. Absolutely. Well, that yeah. and that <laughs> but, is the problem but, but, with but a lot of gangster that, rappers. Right. That is a lot of that um. is actually one thing that has com- changed so significantly about the genre is, and you know, Pac also theater kid sure. from right. Baltimore, right. self creation in many ways. Sure. You know, comes from obviously like a a rebellious and activist family, but Absolutely. like so much of this stuff is is self mythology, right? And I don't, you know, maybe somebody like that fits into the equation in the twenty twenty version too. I don't maybe. know. Maybe mm-hmm. Sean, if you had to describe Juice in three words, what three words would you choose? Wow, I think it has to be know the ledge, right? That's Absolutely. The, that's, <laughs> that's what what how else to describe it? There that's you go. It. There you go. Tell me everything I needed to know. If listeners enjoy checking out Juice, both the movie and the soundtrack, we got recommendations for what you should peep next. Sean, why don't you kick us off? You know, if you like Juice and you like Tupac Shakur and you like Tupac Shakur on screen, I would recommend a movie that has kind of fallen by the wayside in the Tupac filmography, which is a movie called Gridlocked. It's a comedy from 1997. It stars Tupac and Tim Roth as essentially two junkies trying to make their way through the world. And it's directed by Vondi Curtis Hall, who is a really great actor who people may recall from Romeo and Juliet. And Gridlocked is not exactly like Juice in its tone, but it captures that same incredible energy, intensity, and kind of comic sensibility that you see from Tupac and Juice. So if you haven't seen Gridlocked, I would recommend you check it out right now. Collect calls to my dogs from the county jail. Sending me mail. Heard the blocks in the same shape. Ain't nothing changed. Niggas slanging at the same place. The same face is supposed to always hate our foes. For me, what comes to mind would be John Singleton's Poetic Justice, which was his follow-up to Boys in the Hood, in a film that came out just a year after Juice. It also stars Tupac, albeit in a much kinder, gentler Tupac, playing opposite Janet Jackson. And oddly, Janet isn't on the soundtrack, but at least they finally got Tupac to record uh, one for here. He's uh, on the soundtrack with Definition of a Thug. Plus, you got tracks by Naughty by Nature, Nice and Smooth, Tony, 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 who we, we were talking about earlier, and one of my all-time favorite Pete Rock and Seal Smooth joints, 
one in a million. Like the mob every single day. 93, no shorts. Music is my sport. The hot metal's on my waist, brother. Here's a taste. In your face, the bass chilling like a mass villain. Nobody better, cause we're one in a million. One in a million. We uh, going back to uh, March of 1994, the director was Jeff Pollock, Above the Rim. Uh, this also features Tupac Shakur. Um, this is about Dwayne Martin, who plays basketball, and he's got loyalties to Tupac, who's a drug dealer, and an ex-basketball player named Leon. Um, at the time, I remember thinking, I don't know what the movie's going to be like, but this soundtrack is Fire, uh, produced by Death Row Records, who in 1994 uh, were killing the game. She was with my woman and my newborn kid With my mind on my money and my money on my mind We do this every day about the same time I was at the park one day That's when I saw a face She looked kind of to me But when I take her That will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Sean Fennessy. Sean, what are you working on now besides recording 15 podcasts a week? So many things. Uh, yeah, I'm the host of a show called The Big Picture. I'm frequently on the rewatchables. Um, at The Ringer, we're doing all kinds of things on our website, our YouTube channel. We have a couple of films in production at the moment, so there's a lot going on right now. And where can people find more about you? Where, where are you on the socials? Um, you can catch me at, at Sean Fantasy on Twitter. That's more than enough. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to be sharing that much more. No, good enough. Thank you so much for coming through today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated this conversation. Yeah. Thank you for picking this album. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Max Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, where we always try to know the ledge. One last thing, here's a teaser for next week's episode, the next installment in the Music and Popcorn series, featuring Max Fun's own April Wolf of Switchblade Sisters, who came in to talk with us about Whitney Houston's breakout 1992 smash, The Bodyguard. It surprises me that this film wasn't made in some version sooner, because especially when you think about all the thrillers coming out of the 70s and in the 80s, mm-hmm. this kind of basic storyline, would you would think, would have made a perfect kind of film. And for somebody else. You know what I'm saying? Whitney wasn't the only pop star around this time. We, sure. we also had Madonna around this time. Mm-hmm. So surprising that this wasn't a vehicle for Madonna. One of the reasons why it seems that they went with Whitney is that, and no offense to Madonna, I mean, she she doesn't have the kind of vocal capabilities that Whitney Houston did, like, never, right? <laughs> so, Truer words. Uh, so, I mean, like, she's spoken. a great, like, stylist of, of things, and, you know, she's got a great image, and, and that was always kind of fun, you know, doing creative things. But Whitney Houston was just, you know, pure, obviously, a raw singer. Sure. And that's what Kevin Costner was, was looking for, was that, um, you know, because he was thinking early on what the songs were going to be. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.